is exactly right. This is the second episode in a four-part series. Please listen to episode one, September 4th, 1998, before listening to episode two. police but nobody he didn't come and then when he did come he said she had to be missing 24 hours before they'll go looking for her so i had another friend which his name is felicia c she called down there raising sand and going on and he came back out but he didn't do anything he didn't even report it saturday september 5th 1998 the night before shikimia shiraz pate had vanished her mother veronica had searched their neighborhood so had their family, like her sister Laswanda, her Aunt Regina, her cousins, their friends, their neighbors, everyone calling out her name into the dark, calling the Unadilla Police Department and calling them again. An officer eventually came by, but declined to take a report. So the neighbors kept phoning in, raising sin, as Veronica says, throughout the night. And the Dooley County Sheriff's Office, the area's other law enforcement agency, they had no idea this was happening. Their office didn't get a report. By the time investigator Randy Lamberth was told there was a missing child, it had been 14 hours since the last sighting of Shakimia Pate. Though the officer from the Unadilla Police Department had not filed a missing persons report for the child, he had called defects on her mother. To understand how this happened, how it could have happened, you need to know a few things about law enforcement in 1998, Unadilla, how the system operated. The Unadilla Police Department was actually dissolved in 2008. Since that time, the city council has contracted with the Dooley County Sheriff to provide law enforcement within the city limits. Meeting minutes published in the Macon Telegraph indicate that they first did so on four-year contracts. Those had to be negotiated and approved by the council. Since that time, it's been Sheriff Peavy and his staff who've answered 911 calls originating from Unadilla. But the system has not always been so simple. During our research, we came across a lawsuit filed by a former Unadilla Police Department officer who was part of the force after its 2002 expansion. That's when there were six officers, double the force of 1998 when Shaikimia went missing. In his suit, he claimed racial discrimination against himself, a white employee, and a force he described as favoring officers of color. That suit was summarily dismissed. What we learned reading through it, though, was that both the police department and the sheriff's department had their own dispatches. So 911 calls originating in Unadilla would go first to the Unadilla police. Only if officers were not available would the calls be forwarded to the sheriff's office. If a Unadilla resident wanted to speak to the sheriff, they would need to call the main landline, not 911. So if the Unadilla police took a call and did not alert the Dooley County Sheriff, it could be hours or even days before the information was shared between the organizations. In this case, any 911 call made by Veronica or her friends and family would have gone to the Unadilla police. 
And as we told you at the top of the episode, an officer did eventually come out, but he advised Shaikimia's family that they'd need to wait 24 hours to file a report. That advice meant that no paperwork existed, so it couldn't be shared. None of the calls would have possibly been noted by the sheriff. Legislation passed in the early 1990s did away with minimum waiting periods in the case of missing children. In 1998, lawmakers were already on their way to establishing Amber Alerts. The high-profile kidnapping and murders of several children between 1996 and 1998 had laid bare how ill-equipped we were to efficiently spread vital information. So, for a child missing in the late 1990s, all hands on deck had become accepted practice. So why didn't the Unadilla police officer file a missing persons report? He came out to Veronica's house at least once that evening. He would have seen the neighbors searching. In media reports, he's referred to as a young officer, an inexperienced officer, and certainly not one who dealt with any kind of disappearance. And that's fair enough. But the sheriff could have, should have been informed. That would have been the work of a moment. Because when Dooley County was informed, that's when everything finally swung into motion. Between 2000 and 2008, a series of Macon Telegraph articles highlighted various issues faced by and within the Unadilla Police Department. In that time, there were at least three that we've identified, different chiefs of police, plus interim chiefs to fill the gaps. Leonard Smith was chief during a 2001 series of rapes and assaults that terrified Unadilla. He was dismissed from his position that same year. The Macon Telegraph reported that the former chief was, quote, sentenced to five years in prison for claiming simultaneous work hours at both the Unadilla and Fort Valley Police Departments. The Telegraph continued, quote, allegations surfaced in April 2006 that Smith, then employed full-time at the Fort Valley Police Department and part-time as Unadilla's chief, was being paid to be on duty for both agencies during the same hours. Now, Smith later appealed this ruling, which was eventually overturned, but he still served several years. He was also indicted, along with a few other city officials, for improper use of city funds. And his replacement, Greg Hathaway, was also dismissed as chief. The Telegraph reported that, quote, Hathaway was fired for having a female guest at a hotel room rented by the city for emergency purposes in preparation of Hurricane Ivan. But, quote, Hadaway alleged that his firing was political and had more to do with tickets written by police officers to friends and family members of council members. Based on these few facts alone, it's fair to say that, for the police department, the early 2000s were a turbulent time. When reading about Unadilla crimes and Shaikimia's disappearance, there's little direct mention of the Unadilla police. It's much more common to find quotes from Sheriff Van Peavy or his son Craig Peavy or Dooley County investigators or even local GBI agents. It is noted that Unadilla officers did participate in searches, along with officers from at least four surrounding counties, the GBI, FBI, Georgia Department of Natural Resources, and the State Patrol. But that's the extent of their coverage in her case. With the police department 11 years gone, no one can prove what was said or done or not done that Friday night. Only on Saturday morning between 10 and 11 a.m. does the official record begin. When investigator Randy Lamberth was alerted to the situation, the missing child, he headed directly to Veronica Pate's apartment. You might recall that she'd received a visit from DFAX that morning, 
and the agent had actually expressed surprise that there was no report. With Veronica at the time that Randy arrived were friends, family, neighbors, and a local preacher. According to Veronica, the pastor, Don Moore, had been placing telephone calls throughout the night, trying to pull strings and get authorities involved. Everyone there was exhausted and tense and terrified, tired of waiting. Veronica's sister Regina had finally gone back to her own house, where she actually called the sheriff's office directly. He he hadn't been informed of anything. He didn't know that a call had come in about an eight-year-old child. Those were his words to me. He said, because with an eight-year-old child, you don't wait 24 hours. You get on the ball then. He said, that, that applies to adult, he said. That doesn't apply to a child. The search began in Veronica Pate's own home. Shikemia's father, Chris Foster, was incarcerated at the time of her disappearance, but every other immediate family member was questioned and then interviewed. Veronica remembers the first few hours of the investigation. So they searched, like, everybody's house from where I live on up through time. And after that, then they came, they did me first, and then they did, they, I still never got a book back, but I don't know where it is. But they um, did that. Then they fingerprinted all us and stuff to check our fingerprints. And then they put a little dot stuff in my house to see what, has she been killed or anything in the house or whatever. Investigators worked their way up the street. They moved through the duplexes, the mobile homes, and the small houses that were separated by thin strips of grass or empty green lots. Based on our various law enforcement and family interviews, it's apparent that houses in at least a five- or six-block radius were searched, and residents uniformly gave their permission. Maybe this is when neighbors Keith Caldwell and his partner Sharon had told police they'd given Shakimia a hot dog that Friday evening. An immediate point of focus was Roxy's Club, specifically the regulars, both customers and the participants in the drug trade who congregated outside. Veronica reports that some arrests were made that day, but not in relation to Shikimia's disappearance. The arrests were made for drugs. But he was saying that the reason he um, arrested them, them because he knew that if anybody seen anything, it should have been some of them because, like he said, it always was going to be a drug dealer and a drug user. I, he said, you know, if you were getting with somebody, man or something, they'd have saw that. But if with a child, they should have been seeing something. And he said he knew that they saw something. They just ain't saying anything. Shank and Roxy Cosby, who'd been working that night, Shakimia vanished, didn't offer any official statements. It's unlikely they even saw anything as they'd been inside. But their club would remain a part of the investigation. Law enforcement used the space as a makeshift home base for the search. Investigator Randy Lamberth, who's been on the case since day one, described the club as a natural choice. The uh, Roxy Club, the parking lot uh, right there is right on Crumper Avenue. Uh, it also was located right in front of the apartment in which Shasha and her mom and sisters lived. So it was just a convenient location that we could park and stage. Uh, also, the utilities of the Roxy Club was open to us and would be able to use that as well. And it, it was just a convenience. And uh, I mean, being right there at the apartment, it was extra convenient. We asked Investigator Lamberth to describe some of the measures that were taken during that initial search, which spanned Saturday, September 5th, and Sunday, September 6th. Local citizens had already been started on Friday afternoon, uh, doing searches in the area around houses, yards, uh, along with the 
local Unadilla uh, fire and rescue personnel. They was doing this on Saturday afternoon. We started doing aerial searches, uh, extended the searches out. We included uh, four-wheelers on any path that somebody could have walked or either driven a vehicle. We would ride and stand out uh, so far from that, just looking and see what could be found. There, there's actually been numerous searches uh, where we actually extended uh, because of Shasha was wanting to go to a local football game, which was located in Vienna, uh, Georgia, which was about, uh, I'd say, 12 miles south of Unadilla. Uh, any path of travel, uh, we actually done aerial searches of the roadways there, uh, see if anything could be found. Uh, we extended our searches even further outside of town. We actually went to, we worked a 10-mile radius, basically, of uh, Unadilla and the point of instant. Uh, say any, anything else there uh, I mean the home searches of about five blocks of the instant location was also searched with uh, consensual searches of the residents people opened our ha their houses and uh, you know they allowed us to go in and search whatever they had there trying to find uh, Shasha. Did you use dogs at times? At that time the dogs uh, on the Saturday wouldn't really beneficial uh, because of so much foot traffic and everything, and they'd been tracking somebody else and not Shy Shy. Now, later on into the case, yes, we did. Uh, we highlighted certain areas that could be possibility where we brought in cadaver dogs. Uh, there was a couple of ponds that uh, were searched, uh, several other areas that were searched with the cadaver dogs. Uh, all of these uh, produced negative. The FBI and the GBI became involved very quickly. How did that come about? Uh, again, uh, with me contacting uh, our local GBI agent that lived here within the county on that Saturday morning, their office became involved. Uh, and with a missing child, uh, there are certain requirements through the National Crime Information Center we know as NCIC. Uh, where a missing child has to be entered within that computer system uh, almost immediately. Uh, this child was entered uh, into NCIC, and in doing so, it alerts the FBI, actually alerts the National Center for the Missing and Exploited Children, uh, in which notified the FBI of a missing child. Uh, then they contacted uh, the GBI and, and they sent agents in and, and started assisting. The GBI's early involvement meant that, as early as Sunday, September 6, its agents were quoted in local media and were bringing their resources to the case. Though several agents were actively involved, the family's primary contact and later their friend became Ben Collins. Veronica told us that Ben became very close to their family, so much so that when he was deployed in Afghanistan in the early 2000s, he still called Veronica to check in. Collins, now with the Georgia Department of Corrections, still cares very much about Shykemia's case. He spoke to us about the frantic pace of that initial investigation and the difficulty of tracking down witnesses. Well, I'm, I mean, we went nonstop. The, uh, the first month, I, I know we worked 16 to 18 hours a day continuously uh, to, tr to try to find Shykemia and to run the leads down that we had at the time. There were a lot of good people that lived in that neighborhood. Uh, 
a lot of hard work in people, but it was a high crime area. There was a lot of, of street narcotic sales, and that was probably one of the biggest obstacles that we had to overcome during the initial part of the investigation. We would receive information about somebody being at a certain street corner at a certain time, and we would go back and discuss it with them, and they would uh, say that they weren't there and then come to find out they were there. They were just dealing narcotics and they didn't want to tell us that they were dealing narcotics. And that was one of the most frustrating things that we had to overcome. As Veronica and investigator Lamberth have said, community members had already been searching for Shaikimia and that only gained momentum over the weekend. Before the sheriff's investigators had even been informed, flyers had been printed and were being distributed. On Saturday afternoon, the school principal, Dr. Bobby West, arrived at the home. Schoolmates' parents began to spread the word, and eventually all of Unadilla heard about Shaikimia's disappearance. It happened through word of mouth, mostly, before Shaikimia could even be featured in the local newspaper or on TV. Sandra Ferguson, Shaikimia's former school counselor, has a very clear memory of the moment she heard that morning. Well, you know, we're... uh very small community, and the morning after she was identified as missing, I had gone to a local store, and at the store, there was a lady who was a huge school and community advocate, and she approached me and told me that Shasha was missing. The lady, who is now deceased, and I agreed to meet with several other people in the community and from the school at the local bank, and we just started walking the town. I really think Initially, everyone was a little bit in shock. You know, this is Unadilla. People are missing in Unadilla. And uh, we've had children outside this place for a few hours. You know, they might have um, ridden the bus with a friend, tell the parent or whatever, and, and we would find them. But to go that length of time without actually knowing where someone was or, you know, they had tracked down everywhere they knew to look, the parents and family and so forth. So I do think initially, you know, that, that the school faculty and, and staff, we were all a little bit in shock, you know. We, uh, you feel anxious, you kind of panicky until you can kind of locate a child. And then when the time kept going, it was unbelievable. You know, uh, I think the emotions kind of then shifted once the time had passed a little bit and there was more of a sense of urgency. People came from around uh, in the area with ATVs and first responders, law enforcement. You know, they, they were more um, visible in the community and everything, you know, and uh, I think the classmates were a little concerned too because, you know, not only for Shasha but their own safety, because, you know, you're on the street one minute in front of your house or not far from your house. It's a road where, and, and a location where people were out all the time, you know. And so it's like, how, how could someone go missing and someone not see something? So counselors and support staff from the district, you know, came to the elementary school to offer some support for the staff and for the students. But I do feel like the community as a whole was on edge. You know, a missing child here in Unadilla, what do we do? And people wanted to help, but I don't really know that they knew how to help because they didn't want to hinder, you know, law enforcement either. It was a little edgy there. 
Based on archival copies of the Cordial Dispatch, the Hawkinsville Dispatch and News, and the Vienna Observer, Sandra was right. The community was on edge, frightened, wanting answers, keeping their children close. Shaikimia's classmates thought the same thing might happen to them. Within three days, the Unadilla principal, Dr. West, had arranged for special counselors to visit the school and work with the students. Early newspaper coverage of her disappearance have a veneer of hopefulness. An article in the dispatch describes a balloon release organized by the elementary students. They put slips of paper containing information about Shaikimia inside the balloons, hoping to attract attention and tips. The balloons were Shaikimia's favorite color, pink. That particular article, though, ends with a worrisome line, quote, There are no leads in this case. Several other stories describe the pink ribbons classmates and teachers wore. The News Observer reported that 50 local businesses were also displaying the pink bows. Tony Britt of the Cordial Dispatch added that local churches raise money to support the search efforts. But every article has one thing in common. Each notes exactly how long she'd been missing at the time of publication. Counting the hours, the days, the weeks, it sent another quieter message about the likelihood of her survival. Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You deserve gorgeous, professional color delivered to your door for less than $25. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. Many Madison Reed clients comment how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. The summer's winding to a close. Why not refresh your color with Madison Reed? The color quiz at madison-reed.com will help you choose the shade that's right for you. And maybe you're like me, nervous to color your hair at home. With instructional videos and step-by-step guides from do I wash my hair before I color it to how do I treat color-resistant gray hair, Madison Reed's FAQs and videos had my answers. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. The Fall Line listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code FALLINE. F-A-L-L-L-I-N-E. That's code FALLINE at madison-reed.com. We'd like to invite you to check out our friends over at Crawlspace. Crawlspace is a true crime and mystery podcast hosted by the creators of Missing Maura Murray. Crawlspace runs the gamut of the crime genre with hosts who apply their deep-dive investigative technique into cold cases and missing persons cases, like Brianna Maitland and Brandon Lawson. They discuss the mysteries of Suitcase Jane Doe, the Colonial Parkway murders, and Daniel Sleeper's disappearance with people who were close to the cases. Tim and Lance also converse with experts in the fields of criminal psychology, law enforcement, and crime media. Want to know how to catch a liar? Or what it's like to wear a wire and get a confession from a juror in your son's wrongful murder conviction? Crawlspace has it. Check out Crawlspace on your favorite podcatcher now.
Within days of Shaikimia's disappearance, law enforcement involvement had expanded. Tony Britt of the Cordial Dispatch makes first mention of the FBI on September 11, 1998, seven days after Shaikimia disappeared. The News Observer reported that, in the first month, over 100 interviews were conducted. FBI spokesman Steve McDermott is reported as saying, quote, We are working under the assumption that she's alive. McDermott also pointed out that Shaikimia might have been taken over state lines and that people in those states should be aware. That awareness never reached other states, but hundreds of interviews were conducted. As we said that first weekend, they were mostly focused on the family. This is standard in any missing persons case. Veronica, her children, and her closest relatives were questioned multiple times. There are a few exceptions, like her sister Regina, who told us she'd never actually been formally interviewed, but everyone who lived in that duplex spoke with authorities. Veronica's mother and brother were also interviewed. As search parties continued, spreading out as far as the edges of Montezuma, Vienna, Perry, Hawkinsville, Cordill, the family spent a lot of time with the GBI. Though the initial search efforts were based out of Roxy's Club, formal questioning occurred at the command center, which at the time the Cordill Dispatch reported as Off Highway 41. Back then, the new sheriff's office within the Justice Complex hadn't been built. That 1998 command center is long out of use. When we visited Dooley, the new center is where we met with Investigator Lambreth. That new complex sits a mile or so off Pinehurst-Hawkinsville Road. Right off the exit, there's an old gas station that had at some point been converted into a massage parlor. And just a bit further down, past a few fields, is that Dooley Justice Complex. The building is highly efficient, combining a courthouse, dispatch, and the sheriff's office into one tidy box. A poster of Shaikemia is still prominently displayed in the lobby, just like it had been in the command center. Everyone there still calls her Shai Shai. A new location, but the same goal. In the following clip, Veronica describes her initial experience with the GBI at that original command center. Then they started taking you know, asking questions, and then I had to do, like, a lot of tests, so I took, like, three. Then my mama came, she took one, my brother took one, and my oldest daughter took one. My other kids couldn't take one because one was 12 and one was 15. They they did three um, lie detector tests on me, and after I passed all three of the lie detector tests, that's when they offered it was $15,000. After their initial investigation... Local authorities felt assured that Veronica had no part in Shaikimia's disappearance. That didn't stop some area journalists from speculating on her involvement, though, or critiquing her reaction. In particular, an article in the Cordial Dispatch offered a troubling observation. It was Tuesday, September 15th, and Shai Shai had been missing for 11 days. In it, the author is summarizing a TV news interview that featured Veronica, whom she describes as, quote, showing little emotion and at times smiling to the camera. Now, this is hardly the worst thing that was said about Veronica or her family, but it felt worse coming from the paper. It got bad enough that a friend, Lawanda Granville, contacted that journalist to defend Veronica. In direct response, the journalist ran another article, this time including support from Veronica's family and friends. 
In that article, Luanda is quoted as saying, quote, I don't think it was appropriate to say Veronica was showing little emotion. Her doctor prescribed an antidepressant for her to make her feel better. At night, she cries so hard that she shakes. We sit up with her to watch her and keep her company, and she sits in a chair waiting for her daughter to come home. Another friend is also quoted in support of Veronica. It's in this article that, finally, it's explicitly stated that the family are not considered suspects. Veronica's own memories of that time, the weeks and first months after Shikimia's disappearance, are fraught and hazy and dark. They gave me trizodone, they gave me a fistula, they gave me vaginal, they gave me all the medicine, but the medicine still wasn't doing no good. It wasn't making me go to sleep. It wasn't taking the pain away. And one day I came to Walmart, and I walked in Walmart. I was so schizophrenic, I thought them folks finna kill me. I don't even know how I got home. I drove home, but I don't know how I got home. And then I was still waking up at night at 2.30 in the morning, sitting in a corner crying. Didn't know how I got there. When I got out of bed, I woke up like a zombie. Because I don't remember. I don't think I remember is sitting in the corner crying and my clock saying 2.30. I throw away my alarm clock. Because every night I woke up, it said 2.33. Same time for two years. For two years, I didn't go outside. On our first visit to Unadilla... Veronica, her sisters Regina and Rotonda, and her cousin Sue all talked with us about rumors and judgments. Specifically, they reflected on how media and community view the parents and families of missing and murdered children. Talk about what they saw. My thing is the very first officer was trying to play the blame game. Oh, she's not here because you did something to her. Or you try to make myself like she was a bad mom, but, you know, it happens. We can't stop God from things happening. No matter how much we would have all of had our arms around her, if it was time for her to be removed from us, God was going to let that happen. I mean, of course, everybody might not look at it the way I look at it, because I look at everything goes in order of what God had planned. Everybody can play the if I could have, would have, should have. Right. I've always said if we were going to blame anybody, then the whole community was to blame, because we all did it. We all let our kids win. So Mm -hmm. there's no one person that could be blamed. We all would have to be to blame, because we all did it. In those early weeks, the Shikimia Pate Task Force worked seven days a week. Both the GBI's Ben Collins and the Sheriff Department's Randy Lamberth described 16-hour days. The pace couldn't be kept up indefinitely. Manpower was eventually scaled back. The Cordial Dispatch reported that the team was pared down to six full-time officers and agents. They continued to pursue leads and search through the rural county surrounding Unadilla. And after that first month of her disappearance, most in law enforcement were fearing the worst. If Shaikimia was nearby and alive, wouldn't she have been found? In order to understand what might have happened, officials needed to understand more about the person who took her and why. In 1998, criminal profiling, the kind that we're now conversant with through shows like Mindhunter, wasn't part of the public consciousness. Maybe that's why there isn't media mention of the suspect profile that was developed in Shaikimia's case. Former GBI agent Ben Collins told us that several professionals worked on the profile, coming from out of state to review the case. That profile has never been released publicly. When we met with the GBI this summer, Assistant Special Agent in Charge Todd Crosby confirmed that the FDLE had indeed worked on a suspect profile. While the GBI prefers to keep the precise details confidential, we can say this much. 
Based on our discussion and on what is generally known about profiling, some broad characteristics that could be applicable would be the following. A suspect would most likely be male. That's based purely on who commits crimes against children, assuming that a family is not at fault. Though women are much more likely to kidnap babies, a non-familial abduction of a child or teenager is more likely to be perpetrated by a male. That suspect would also likely be black. Though not always the case, kidnappings tend to be intraracial, with predators choosing victims mostly or exclusively from their own race. Finally, it would be logical that the perpetrator was or is a local. That's because strangers to the neighborhood were quickly spotted by its close-knit residents. But also, as locals reported to us, because of the drug trade. Law enforcement told us that dealers kept a close watch on who came and who went. Only a resident, a regular on the street, might move about without notice. As weeks turned into months, it became more difficult for the family and law enforcement to hold the public's attention. Shaikimia's step-grandmother, Wilhelmina Foster, paid to have a billboard erected along the highway. It advertised the reward and featured a picture of Shaikimia. But she couldn't fund it for long. After that first month, Shaikimia's name faded from local media coverage. And Veronica stayed up, night after night, hoping her baby might reappear. She sat facing the unlocked door, which she left open despite her own fear. I didn't want her to have to knock on the door. I didn't want her to be able to walk in. After Shaikimia was entered into Nickmex system, Veronica was regularly supplied with flyers to hang around town. That meant Shaikimia's face, and eventually her age progression, would stare back at Veronica from store windows. Veronica's three other children helped her weather Shaikimia's ninth birthday that October. At Christmas, Veronica didn't feel like celebrating. But she still put up a Christmas tree because it was Shaikimia's favorite part of the holiday. She still puts up a tree to this day. Even with the ribbons, the flyers, the searches, which scaled back further by necessity until they could only follow active leads, there were no breaks in the case. Investigator Lamberth tells us that, after a time, Nickmeck arranged to have Shaikimia's missing poster shown on America's Most Wanted. And to our knowledge, that's the one moment her story would have reached a national audience. At the end of the show of uh, America's Most Wanted, they usually run a couple-minute clips of uh, other missing children in which we were notified that uh, they would be running Shy Shy uh, on these clips. And each one of these clips for each child is about 15 to 20 seconds or so, and, and they usually run a couple of minutes right at the end of the show. So this is children that's not only local here to us, but also uh, across the U.S. Now, whenever I say local to us, Shasha is our first missing child that uh, basically that we can document uh, in every case like this. Yeah, so do you know if that sort of initiated any national tips coming in? Yes, uh, we did get tips from all over the U.S., uh, basically how these were handled uh, if they were in Georgia. Uh, they was passed on to the Georgia Bureau Investigations, and they would send their agents from their local office out to investigate and, and would rule these in or out or say, you know, whether there's a possibility or no possibility at all. Anything outside the state of Georgia, in which there were several, uh, t these tips was passed on to the 
uh, FBI where they would relay the information onto their local office, and from there it would be ruled in or out, in which all of these was all ruled out uh, as negative results for us. Those negative results have frustrated generations of law enforcement. Dooley County's current sheriff, Craig Peavy, now sits in his father's chair. He holds the same elected office, overseeing the same county. In 1998, Craig was an investigator on his father's team. Perhaps more than anyone, he sensed how the dead ends in Shikimia's case affected then-Sheriff Van Peavy. I can tell you that, of course, you know, something like this, especially anything that involves a child, affects all of us. But he, uh, he is, my father was always one to, you know, any case of any kind left unsolved, just word him anyway. You know, he he wanted to solve it. He he wanted to protect and serve like he uh committed himself to do when he ran, you know, and uh he's always been like that even outside the office. And but I could tell days that things bothered him during this whole process. You know, even you know, right as it happened and we were out looking, we had teams on four wheelers and on foot and any tip, any lead it came in, you know, regardless of how it sounded, we, you know, we checked it out. And uh, we, uh, I, I watched him to the point where some days I just didn't bother about, you know, you know, is anything wrong, what's going on. I knew where his mind was, you know, and he just, this was just something that all he wanted to do, it was just about like nothing else mattered, you know, he, he had to find this little girl. And uh, he he had us all same mindset, um, and every you know nobody was there because he told us to be there. Everybody was there because they wanted to be there. From FBI, you know, GBI, different agencies, DNR, State Patrol, you name it, outside agencies coming in. Um, you know, any little league, we all jumped in as a team, split up in groups, and and we searched. Uh, so many places, you know, and and uh, followed so many leads. But, you know, it just every time we'd follow a lead and it'd come to a dead end, I could really see it just, you know, eating on my father. Eventually, it was late summer, 1999. Everyone, Veronica, her family, the sheriff's office, the assigned GBI agents, were acutely aware that they were facing down a stark anniversary. There might be a few articles to mark the 365 days that had passed since they last saw Shikimia, but there was no new information. No one coming forward to say they'd seen her at another house, in a car, turning a corner. And maybe no one had seen. But that wasn't likely. Though the media didn't reflect it, Unadilla residents had not forgotten their lost girl. Parents remained wary. They kept their children close. Regina, Veronica, and Rotunda told us that, at that time, everyone remained in a near-constant state of hypervigilance. Yeah, when it, when it happened, everybody in that neighborhood was, I mean, you know, was frantic. Your kids couldn't go nowhere without you and stuff. And, and that's how she was about her kids. When that happened and stuff, you know, you see, you see equation. You, well, she says you're going to, you know, and all day long, she called it when she didn't see him. And stuff, and that's how everybody in the community had got because I mean that that's unusual for something like that to happen. So everybody had to know where their kids were then. 
that was worse on mine yeah. after that happened. You know, worse. Like, you can't do this and you can't do that. And this might happen and that may happen. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them said, you don't trust nobody. You don't trust anybody. But it's likely that worry didn't extend much past the town's borders. After all, counties near Dooley, like Twiggs, Pulaski, Sumter, Crisp, had all remained quiet. That peace lasted until August of 1999. That year, August 15th, fell on a Thursday. In Twig County, it was hot, bright. The temperatures that month hovered around 90 degrees. A little girl named Teresa Dean lived in a mobile home park right at the Twiggs County line. Teresa, who was 11, spent that day as she spent most others, more outside than in. The Macon Telegraph reports that, in the late afternoon, she ventured outside yet again. That time, she was going to see a neighbor's new puppies. Teresa was reportedly seen near some pine trees at the corner of a road. That was around 8 p.m., just about the time Shaikimia Pate had been spotted, a year before and an hour away. And just like Shaikimia, Teresa didn't come home. Next time on The Fall Line, the cases of two other children in middle Georgia, Teresa Dean and Tevin Hammonds. And more on the man who committed a series of assaults aimed at young girls. A man who lived just a few doors down from Shaikimia. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Shaikimia Pate, you may report them, even anonymously, to the GBI or the Dooley County Sheriff's Office. Call 1-800-597-TIPS or 229-645-0930. There is now a $20,000 reward in her case. If you have a case suggestion, please visit our website and use the submission form. You can find us at thefalllinepodcast.com, at falllinepodcast on Instagram and Twitter, and thefalllinepodcast on Facebook. Special thanks to Angie Dodd for her generous support. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Brooke Floyd. Content advisors are Brandy Williams and Liv Fallon. Music is by RJR. Allison McCullum assisted with administrative duties, and a special thanks to our new producer, Maura Curry, who also engineered and mastered these episodes. Find our merch in the Exactly Right Podswag store. A portion of our proceeds are donated to support the work of the DNA Doe Project. Oh, and just a heads up, in two weeks, we'll discuss how social media techniques can be used to close cold cases. If you'd like to participate, check out Billy Jensen's new book, Chase Darkness with Me, which comes out on August 13th. We'll discuss techniques detailed in the book that Jensen used to solve or help solve 10 murders and to find missing people. And we'll find out more about how the same techniques might be applied to Shaikimia's case. We hope you'll join us then. Hi, this is Allison Horrocks, host of The Strange and Unusual podcast, If you enjoy dark history, legends, folklore, murder mysteries, superstition, ghost stories, and more, then this is the podcast for you. On the Strange and Unusual podcast, we explore the fear of the unknown throughout history and how today we still feel the shadowy presence of our ancestors' struggles to explain the unknown. Through current-day pulp culture, urban legends, rituals, and even murder, We are still just fighting to keep our monsters in the dark. You can find the Strange and Unusual podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. 
Visit the strange and unusual podcast.com for links to the show.